Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. No surrender, Percy Fender. No surrender, Percy Fender. No surrender, Percy Fender. No surrender, Percy Fender. Welcome to part two of our exploration of the extraordinary life of. Percy George Herbert Fender. I'm with Dan Norcross, uh, John Surtees of Surrey, and very importantly, Guy and Nick, uh, Percy's two grandsons. Dan, you had a particular question you wanted to ask. Well, yes, I, I want to understand in his personal life, um, did he come across as a man who challenged authority or laughed at authority? Uh, because it seems to me that he actually... He derives quite a bit of pleasure out of being a bit naughty. And was he like that as a grandfather? Did he sort of encourage you to be a bit, you know, challenging of authority and, and ask questions all the time? Uh, not, not to me, no. He was very... Uh, I think he sort of wanted to lead by example and, and respect uh, your parents and uh, do your very best. It basically was really encouraging, and he didn't say, um, you know, to me or Nick, just because we weren't outstanding cricketers, um, you know, this is this is something that uh, you should try to pursue. He was open to our strengths and uh, and encouraging in our endeavours. And yeah, Nick had some cricketing talent, and I'm sure because he was close to him in his teenage years, you know, they they had a, a strong bond in that respect. But you know, I lived quite a, a way away, and so the relationship was more distant in latter years, although he did actually die in Exeter, which is where I was based, and um, it was always generous. I mean, one of the things, it was always generous, and I think that's the most important thing, and he encouraged adventure. So for me, in my early years, um, and I'd go and visit him in London on the number 16 bus, get off at Park Lane. Uh, he'd give me a five-shilling note and say, take yourself off to London Zoo. Get yourself there and tell me all about it. So there I was. I was eight or nine. And, and then I'd go off down to South Audley Street, and I just took him at his word. And he gave me, he made me feel brave. And that was, that was really great. Um, uh, I went to London Zoo, the, I got into the zoo, had a wonderful time on my own, and then I realised I didn't have enough money to get back. And so I walked around in a circle of Regent's Park, 
a policeman stopped me. He didn't stop me. He said, are you all right, son? I said, yeah, I think so. And I, and I just knew that my grandfather was waiting for me. And I walked all the way back across Oxford Street, through Mayfair, South Audley Street, into Balfour Mews. And he, and he wanted to hear all about it. And I think he was delighted that I'd overcome adversity at eight or nine. And I think and that was him. He was saying, you know, he didn't say go and find a challenge. He actually kind of set me up for one. And uh, that really stuck in my mind. And I felt great because, of course, it was probably irresponsible. <laughs> Thinking about it now, I wouldn't have put my eight-year-old on a trip like that. So, you know, he, I don't know quite how to qualify it, but he was, he was loving in his way. He was a distant patriarchal type figure but not arrogant mm. he didn't yeah you know he, he he tried to set an example but also set you a little challenge and you know he always remembered our birthdays and that was wonderful fantastic that that was absolutely spellbinding what an amazing an amazing thing i mean that that is just for me just so so instructive about the sort of the the, the, the man that i've read about and and and, and learned about that's that's what, what an incredible, incredible story! What, sorry, what, what, what year was 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 that going to be then? Just so I can that picture was, them. Uh, that was been sixty nine. Sixty nine. Sixty eight. Sixty nine. The summer of love. Yeah, absolutely. And trips to, you know, London, and trips to a, London Zoo. A, a buzz. Yeah, it was. It was wonderful. He, you know, he used to. If I stayed the night, which I often did, a Saturday night, he'd uh, we'd have supper together. He put me to bed, and um, having watched Mick McManus wrestle on the black and white TV on Saturday <laughs> afternoon. Um, and uh, he'd go off to Park Lane and play bridge. You know, that would be his evening. But he'd leave me on my own, and that was fine. I was in bed. And uh, then we'd have breakfast in the morning that the housekeeper had laid out. Uh, so he, you know, he, he's kind of trusted me, I guess. But also, this was normal. Um, but his, his normal as a solitary person living on his own uh, he did marry a second time briefly and that didn't work out at all so it, i think it must have been quite a difficult life he lived above the shop in this muse house where his office was and my father worked for quite a few years until they moved to devon um there was a, a wine cellar below and more interestingly the the man that he employed uh, to be his cellarman was uh, someone who'd been invalided out of the trenches in the First World War, really couldn't do anything because his lungs had been damaged from gas attack. And he kept him on and on, even though the wine bottling that was needed became less and less. And he sold, I mean, he was advanced, really ahead of his time in that respect because he, he had the majestic warehouse approach. He sold by the dozen in quantity to his business and friend contacts through the sport, of course, and people might not have liked that, but he was very successful. But he had that business model, which was very advanced for its time. Well, let, let's let's could, move on and get to the, probably the central part. Could of, I? Could of I just have, can I have one more question, of course you please? Can. I'm sorry. Yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm fascinated. So, so the late 1960s, early 1970s were another not good period for for Surrey cricket. Um, we we won the title in in seventy one um, under under Mickey Stewart, but but financially the the, the club was in in ruins um, in the early nineteen seventies. You know to the extent that that the Who played at the ground in nineteen seventy one and Frank Zappa and Emerson Lake and Palmer in nineteen seventy two. You know they were really 
stretching mm. the um, the commercial abilities of what they could do at the Oval. What do you, do you do? You know anything? I know you were you were young then, but what what was Fender's relationship with with the club luck then in those days, and, and and with the Oval? What was your grandfather's relationship there? Was he there a lot? Was he consulted? Was did they use him at all, or, or was he sort of estranged a little bit? I, I I don't know actually. I mean, I was still at school in London, but I didn't I didn't have any insight into. What his relationship? Well, I mean, he had so many friends and so many contacts and a busy life, and he was totally absorbed by sport. And when he stopped being able to see cricket on television or in the flesh, he would listen to the television because the commentary was so much better than the radio, um, and it was on the whole time. So he was completely, absolutely full on, and his memory was great. You know, right into his late eighties. I mean. Diction became slower, but he, you know, he had an acute memory for recalling events in the past, making comparisons, and I really wasn't equipped to chat to to interrogate that intellect. Unfortunately, as a young teenager, in my twenties, I actually tried to interview him with a uh, a friend of mine who originally came from Pakistan, who was a cricketing nut, and we we had a very wide ranging discussion about many things that have actually gone into in more detail in Richard Streeton's book. But he was very willing to talk and be recorded. Um, and, uh, you know, so I was just constantly amazed that he was a man from a bygone era, which is actually, you know, it's only 100 years ago. <laughs> but at that time, it was 50 years it was recent memory for him. He was fully engaged in the game. One thing that fascinated me as I was researching... Uh, his story was the famous mathematician G.H. Hardy uh, was clearly a, a something of an admirer and Hardy came up this is amazing with three cricket teams <laughs> that he selected uh, and he put them all down on a piece of paper with these three teams uh, and they're obviously 33 slots six were filled up by God two each for God the Father the Son and, 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 the, Holy, and the God the Holy Ghost uh, barring Jack Hobbs Percy was the only cricketer to make it into those teams. In fact, he was in it twice uh, compared to Jack Hobbs once. Basically, he got to captain God, Moses, David, Albert Einstein, Benjamin Disraeli, and a bunch of others in his team. So, um, can, can, I, can I add? There were three teams here. There were three yeah. three captains selected. Each team each team had a captain. The captain of Team One, who had the benef- who had the privilege of leading the likes of Hobbes, Archimedes, Shakespeare, Michelangelo, Plato, Beethoven. Cleopatra, Christ J, um, amazingly as well, Jack Johnson, their leader was Napoleon Bonaparte. There you go. Um, team, team two, um, who had the honour of leading a team including um, David, Albert Einstein, um, Fender made it into this team as well, but not as captain, um, and many, many others. God, the, the Holy Ghost was, was playing in this team, so they probably had an advantage. The captain of that team was Disraeli. And then the third, the third team, um, again including Einstein, but also Spinoza. You had De Rothschild, Moses made his way into this team. David also <laughs> named Disraeli also also made it. That was Fender's team. I mean, this is speak, speaking as someone who 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 does enjoy sitting in a pub and creating cricket teams out of people that have no business to be in cricket teams. When he's not creating mathematical <laughs> formula on his blackboard, yeah. it's it's an ama- that's an yeah that an an an, an, an amazing thing. So yeah, Fender Fender is is captain uh, captain alongside Benjamin Disraeli and Napoleon Bonaparte. That's not bad, not that's, bad company at all. Something. Let's let's go on to the. Uh, in some ways, the central piece of our discussion, really, and that's Percy's relationship with 
bodyline now. He'd played Australia in the early 20s. Brabham wasn't there. Um, that was famously an occasion where the crowd was singing Go Home Fender, Go Home Fender. He turned around and conducted them while he was doing it. There's Percy the Entertainer. Which, um, again, again was, is something that happens semi-frequently now, but didn't happen yeah. for about 70 years in the interim period. In, in the crowd that day was a young Don Bradman, and their paths would most certainly cross again. Obviously, he covered the 28-29 series as a journalist, so he saw Bradman close yep. up. Um, uh, and then, having watched Bradman at the Oval, uh, he did score 232, but he noticed, did Percy, that there was uh, something in the hostile pace and bounce of Harold Larwood it's the perfect that, opposite uh, of taking the positives, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> that did that did trouble the, 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 the great Don. So, Dan, there was much more intrigue to the story than just an observation of how the Don played short-pitch bowling, wasn't there? Well, yeah. I mean, the, the part of it is back to video again, isn't it? And being way ahead of your time and analysing, going, going into proper depths and using technology to try to understand how you're going to bring down Bradman. You know, the context you put there perfectly. He didn't rate Bradman when he first saw him. Then he had to eat his words when he scored 974 in seven innings and realised that cricket played the way England were playing it was just going to result in the same thing happening over and over again. So he wasn't prepared to let that happen. And so often it's downplayed or, or he has downplayed his role, I think, in the past. But between he and Arthur Carr and Douglas Jardine, Jardine obviously playing with him at Surrey, um, they concoct this method. They that, or they have this revelation. I think that's a better way of putting it. A revelation that against hostile, fast, short pitch bowling, Bradman just occasionally flinched. And it's only tiny, isn't it? It's like uh, uh, there's, there's just this notice of the back foot slightly moving away to leg. And then from that point on, they set themselves a task of taking down Bradman, because if you can take down Bradman, then suddenly you equalise the terms of engagement. And the fact that he was thinking like that is... That, that's what's most intriguing, actually, is because every other part of English cricket is slightly stultified. You know, you made reference earlier to JWHT Douglas and how Fender clearly has... You know, he's, he's very gracious about what a good player he is, but he does labour the point that he was very rigid in his thinking and had decided that you can't use slow bowlers in Australia and Fender was never prepared to just it seems have these rigid views so then he sets about finding out information about Australian pitches and Australia and how people are bowling at Bradman and uh, and apparently starts to get intelligence coming back from Australian journalists, which they've kept very quiet about, haven't they, over all these years? Well, a central part of the mystery <laughs> we all want to know is who were the two journalists. Well, sadly, the truth for that is lost somewhere is in it? papers in, we, the, in the archives we, that were destroyed in, the, in what Percy called Hitler's War. Oh, uh, that which is, I suppose it was, which is rather sad. That, that is a shame. But the fact that, that you know he was prepared to go to those lengths and obviously had relations with people because he was a journalist himself and he'd been out there in 28, 29. So he developed relations with other journalists. Um, it just goes to show outside-the-box thinking, doesn't it? And then to have the, the, the courage to implement it. I, I get the feeling that the more you, you realise about Percy, that I don't know whether it is so much courage. It's just that, well, it's an opportunity. This is the obvious thing to do. And... The establishment is the thing that's holding everybody back, holding him back from being captain. And, for example, before that, and the, the relationship they then have with this method that works 
is to be sort of embarrassed about it. Plum Warner, of course, comes back into yeah, the story. He does. Because he's the manager of the Bodyline team. Um, but I think Fender's pretty much unapologetic, isn't he, of the uh, Well, of the Well, he is. Now, and central to the auction uh, is a letter that Percy typed on his typewriter, probably quite loudly, um, mm. uh, on the 25th of October, 1983. And this, this uh, is something that you can, you can, you can bid for. Um, but uh, here is here is a flavour of some of the things he says in that he calls it the truth about Bodyline written in his own handwriting at the top it just says don't forget Bertie Oldfield which gives it a, a sense of authenticity uh, says when the side for Australia in 1932-33 uh, was published I believe in June uh, like everybody else I saw that Douglas Jardine as captain had been given by the MCC a battery of four fast bowlers in his side and he names them he actually gets one wrong uh, but he gets three of them spot on and it may well have changed. I wondered how the Australians would react. Uh, it wasn't long before I knew because two friends whom I had made in the press box during my visit to Australia in 28-29 both wrote to me letters which I received about three weeks after publication of the side. Both told me the same story to the effect that as was normal with the Australians as soon as uh, they knew our side they had a meeting to discuss it and make a plan for meeting it he goes on to describe how warwick armstrong the big ship himself then was was chairing that meeting as they figured out what to do with the, uh with these english uh, the england pace bowlers uh percy in turn says i had one or two conversations with douglas on the telephone telling him of these letters and when i received a third letter he asked me to go and visit him at walton on thames where he was living and take the letters with him so I could, so he could see for himself, and this I did. So right there, you've got this sort of brains trust that have gone to meet in leafy Walton-on-Thames uh, with the intelligence of how Australia were, were going to be facing England, uh, got out of Australia through, through, through perfectly legitimate means, um, and then in turn that became Bodyline. But was it ever reprehensible? And that, of course, is the big debate well, and, and did it become Bodyline? There's a, there's a passage later on in the letter. Let me, let me read it. It says, when, when Douglas arrived home and we met, he told me that the local press... This is post-Bodyline now. So when, when Douglas arrived home and we met, he told me the local press had played up very strongly on every possible occasion that the battery of full fast bowlers was reprehensible. And I asked him the straight question, what were your instructions to Larwood? His reply was, I told Larwood that he was a fast bowler in a hot country, and he should conserve his energy and bowl straight, and that Larwood had done just that, not with the intention of hitting them, but because they were attempting to prevent him from bowling straight. Yeah, this letter is just phenomenal in its detail and its recollection. I've got a, re a question for Guy. Um, mm. that he, he, The way your grandfather was portrayed, there was the Australian maid, we might point out, um, mm series about Bodyline in I think 1983-1984 he was played by an Australian actor was Percy John Gregg as mm. slightly foppish monocle wearing kind of alludes to Percy's role in Bodyline um, but I would imagine as a family that the way that he was seen in that documentary was so far from the reality of what he was like very, did that, did very that far from a, did that rankle with him very far from a documentary yeah. Well, I think, you know, there was an agenda there. And, and to be honest, uh, being from the inside, I think it was slightly, well, it was insulting at the very least. But, you know, my grandfather, he 
never overtly uh, expressed his true emotions about that. But I, yeah, I, I think he felt very misrepresented. But equally, I, I think he played it down, so he tried to not give it credibility by reacting. And I don't think he made a... Um, I'm not aware that he made a public comment on that portrayal. But it, it was horrible to see, because I remember seeing it and thinking, well, this is not the person I know. Mm. He didn't play a banjo. He wasn't... Uh, yes, he was a party man. You know, he took his his players to the West End the night before big matches. You know, he was quite um, a charismatic... But he, I think he knew when to say something, and, he, and the time was not then. And he, and there was no uh, subsequent comment on it. I think we as a family didn't feel utterly, you know, totally betrayed or offended, but I think he definitely felt um, that was inappropriate. But I think he also recognised a bit of gamesmanship in a funny sort of way was being played. Yeah, absolutely. Possibly by the by ABC. I think he took big issue to the word reprehensible. And I'll come on. Actually, yeah. I'm glad you you've queued us up nicely there for for the a relationship with the BBC. Um, he says in the letter as well about uh, having written it to remind himself at the top in his handwriting. Don't forget Bertie Oldfield. Um, he goes on with his typewriter. One of the major incidents in the tour uh, was the occasion in the third test at Adelaide where Bertie Oldfield was hit on the head by a ball from Larwood. And a very big amount of publicity was given to the incident, though practically no mention was made at the time of the fact that Oldfield himself claimed that it was not Larwood's fault that he was hit, but his own fault through making a mishit. Um, this is sort of the, 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 the public. It, it, most people, if you think of Bodyline, the iconic image most people remember is Percy Oldfield being, being hit. Um, and yet, here is, here is Percy saying very clearly that Oldfield himself felt he was at fault rather than than, than, yeah. than a decent ball from the, the bowler. That's well, the, an extraordinary new way of thinking about things. Well, well, the the incident's quite clear actually. It, it, you know, the the Adelaide crowd was incredibly febrile, and things had come to a head because their champion batter was being nullified, and they just didn't like it. Um, and what happened was it was a relatively short ball, but it was about um, hip height. And old Phil went for the pull, got a top edge, and went straight into his face. And they didn't have helmets in those days. And those sorts of things happened. I mean, they happened regularly in all forms of cricket. You could do that sweeping a spinner and top edge the ball into your face. It's sort of almost ten a penny getting smashed in the mouth um, in those days. But because of the context in which it happened, and the Australian crowd being in the state they were in, because the, the, the other context of that is that Woodfull had been hit mm. just above the heart. Yes, now, that's right. But again, you know, if we you see view this through the the prism of the modern watcher, you think, well, that's not that bad, is it? I mean, a ball that's coming up around about that height is not banged in at your head, and we're so used to seeing people's heads being peppered that it's difficult for us to understand. But the reason is simply because of the way cricket was played in those days, and it's true that McDonald and Gregory had actually um, employed hostile fast pitch bowling in 1921 against England. But, you know, Australians had a fantastic ability to, um, to, to forget those things when it didn't suit them. <laughs> and, 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 you know, the other part of it was that the field was very theatrically uh, put together. So, you know, Jardine would choose a couple of balls and over, and not every over by any means, clap his hands, and then suddenly this umbrella field would take place. And so there was a, a degree of theatre 
that was attached to it and and that was really that was really the context i i think um one of the things that, that has fascinated me since since reading this letter um was and 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 i absolutely agree with 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 dan dan by the way as we record this podcast is wearing a uh, t-shirt with a uh, Douglas Jardine, Andy Warhol style motif on it, um, just to just to indicate his his feelings on this. But it 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 just made me think. Bodyline part and part of the reason why Bodyline was how it was and how it became how it is remembered and 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 the whole thing is because Jardine was so unwilling to ever take a, a back a back step a backward step in in any part of his life, famously so and. You know, almost as as the atmosphere became more febrile, and as the controversy grew and grew and grew, Jardine almost at the same time became more emboldened. As 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 the um, as the anger grew, Jardine was less and less likely to, to to in any way accept the level of fault. And Percy, possibly in a slightly less pointed way than than Jardine, also seems to have shared a lot of those a lot of those characteristics. You know, he 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 didn't like being told what to do he didn't he didn't agree with something for the sake of agreeing with it and and if he was chided for doing so it didn't doesn't seem like he would then issue a swift apology so it made me think what on earth could have happened had percy been out there himself alongside well, I, jardine yeah. you know it may, may ima- imagine the ruckus that could have been caused had had fender and jardine been out there on the wind-up well he did he, 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 the final part of this letter which as i say you can um, you can read for yourself even own for yourself um, which would be something to own, let me tell you, uh, in its original form. Um, he, he, he clearly had rather a falling out with the, with the BBC, who came to see him, uh, and Guy may record him talking about this, we'll, we'll, we'll find out. Uh, but they wanted to know all about the conversations with Jardine, they wanted to know all about the intelligence that Percy had found, they wanted to know all about how his role in Bodyline, which he duly told them. Um, uh, and he says at the end, and he feels he he, he he sounds like quite angry when he when he says this. I can almost hear the the typewriter keys being just smacked to that little bit harder. He says, "I've since had a letter from the BBC advertising me they intended to show their version of Bodyline, and that in it they did not propose to show the public any of their interview with me. In fact, I understand from their letter that they intend to show one side of the case and not the other. In my interview." I said quite plainly that I knew Douglas Jardine well, both on and off the field, and that he was, in my opinion, one of the finest of men I have ever met and quite incapable, either on the field or off it, of doing anything or agreeing to anything being done which could be called reprehensible. I can just sense, Guy, those typewriter keys being smacked a little bit harder <laughs> when he's yeah. talking about that. It, it, did he talk to you about that one? Mm, he he didn't. No, I he didn't because that, that that sounds angry uh you know that's as far as he would let himself i never saw him angry mm. but you know that sounds pretty damning um so he was very careful and measured with what he said uh, to us um in a family context or in any context he had opinions um but he seemed balanced most of the time all of the time that i you know, conversed with him. Well, I think um, I think we can definitely say that the Percy's role in in the the creation of what became that series. I'm, I'm not. I won't even call it Bodyline now. Um, is is 
is going to be debated for some time to come and and some of the intelligence we've unearthed here thanks to you and your and 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 and, and your and your late dad and that we've come across has, has given us some extra insight and this letter certainly is is absolutely part of that i think one of the other things if we're looking for insight into percy as a character and 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 percy as a as a player and and, and everything else is is the line in the um, in the final paragraph, which you've you've just read, where I'll just read it again, it says, "I can quite, I can, I said quite plainly that I knew Douglas Jardine well, both on and off the field, and that he was, in my opinion, one of the finest men I'd ever met, and quite incapable either on the field or off it of doing anything or agreeing to anything being done which could be called reprehensible." Now, not many people, a lot of well, in fact, a lot a lot of people would not have gone out of their way to say nice things about Douglas Jardine. In fact, many many people over the history of the game have gone out of their way to do to do the exact opposite. You know, Jardine did seem to have a special talent for 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 for, for winding people up the wrong way and and you know aggravating people and and didn't seem to much care when he did so. So so I think for for Fender to to have gone out of his way in this moment, you know, to write this letter, um, you know, clearly maybe an element of this letter was you know wanting to be written. For posterity to put this down on the on the yeah. on the record and to go out of his way to say those things about Jardine to to defend you know someone who who by all accounts is is, is quite a controversial character uh, rep, you know, rep, reputationally I think is 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 a really fascinating. Well, certainly, some things are beyond doubt. He did spot weaknesses in Bradman. He did um, uh, have the Australian contacts. The the, the you know, finding finding who is it's going to be fascinating. Uh, he did meet with Douglas in Leafy Walton on Thames, and uh, they 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 did start to to to, to hatch at least strategies. Um, let's just have a listen to a Percy in an interview he did much later in his life. So this is not when he recorded those tapes that that, that we have, but this was an interview he did do for the BBC. Um, I think at the very beginning of the eighties, um, where he does talk a little bit about um, exactly what went on and his role in it. Well, I I wasn't a mastermind. But I did hand on both letters which I'd received from Australia which suggested that the Australians were had among themselves discussed various methods, various suggestions how to cope with law. I did know what they were and I handed them on to Douglas before he left for Australia. So he knew one of the things before he left which he was going to be up against. Whether it was being worked or not by Warwick Armstrong or anybody else, of course, I, don't, I can't know. I'm quite sure that the last thing in the world that Jardine would have done would have been to give Lawwood any instructions which could be translated into acting reprehensibly. Reprehensible was the word used by the Australian press. Certainly I should concede that the effect of Larwood's uh, fast bowling 
was probably a turning point, as it made their batting hero, Redmond, less effective than the Australian crowd had hoped he would be. Wow. So there, there was, there was Percy. Um, at least they're putting some of the record straight. Um, we're on the last, the last leg of uh, this discussion, which has been absolutely extraordinary. <laughs> and huge thanks to 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 Guy and Nick and the and the Fender family for for, for helping us bring Percy's story to to more to life. Uh, we talked about him as an innovator. Um, uh, years before, I, I just picked out a few things that fascinated me, and I'd love to hear sort of Guy's thoughts of the, 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 the whole innovative side of, 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 of his granddad. Um, before modern coaches, uh, to, he, he'd actually looked at ways to improve the fitness of players. He'd brought a baseball coach to Surrey with a view to improving their fielding. I mean, that's a completely left field piece of thinking. You go, wow, you know, that's extraordinary. Yeah, and 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 these days, you know, you look at fielding in baseball, and it is, it is I think, unarguably better and more accurate than it is in cricket. And and yeah, but there's, there's a lot of famous um, baseball teams have, have played at the Oval, and in in possibly, you know, in, in in Percy's childhood, he would have been aware of a lot of these teams who who, who came to play exhibitions at, at at the Oval. But yeah, amazing. Brilliant, innovative, innovative piece of thinking. Well, what's what's really marvellous about that is that baseball has always been viewed by cricketers as um, a, a vastly inferior sport. And what, what I think that it speaks precisely to in Percy's character is partly what we've been talking around so much, that how much he cavils against the certainties of authority and that authorities decide that this is the way things are. And he might well have thought that baseball was an inferior sport to cricket, but he'd have seen that they catch really well and they throw really well because actually fielding is way more important in baseball um, because you spend most of your time doing it. If you're not a pitcher, then you, you hit the odd ball every now and then. Most of the time you're actually fielding. So um, what, what he's got there, is it, it's just he's not prepared just to accept the prevailing narrative. This is a crap game. Let's not bother thinking about it. It's what the Americans do. Let's not bother thinking about it. Uh, he was also guy, uh, uh, and it, um, it, definitely well ahead of his time in one thing, and that he was a great supporter and promoter of women playing cricket, um, which certainly was was almost unique, probably at the at, 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 at the time of your grandfather. Tell us a little bit more about that. Well, yes, of course, there's no written record of this, but I was deeply impressed when my aunt, um, Patricia, his daughter, who in the mid-30s was a young woman, so early, late 30s, uh, she was at school at Morton Hall, and um, they learnt cricket. And he went to Morton Hall to play cricket on their pitch and to be a mentor, if you like. Um, very, very unofficially, completely loosely, but he saw no good reason why women shouldn't play cricket at whatever level. And and that always stayed with me. He never really talked about it afterwards, but my aunt never forgot it. And that's Nick's mother. Wow. Well, there's some amazing conversations I like to imagine. Yeah, the Surrey Women's Cricket Association was founded in the, in the early 1930s by an incredible woman called Molly Hyde. Um, and uh, yeah, Surrey. So the first recorded Surrey female games were, were played in the in the in the early thirties. And, and I, yeah, I just I just wonder hearing guys say that whether um, whether 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 Percy obviously was a, you know who was a, 
a, a huge figure at the club at the time may may well have um, may well have, 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 have had something to do with that. I don't I don't know, yeah. but it's it's lovely to wonderful to to, to, to think Speculate. that again ties him yeah. even even closer to some of the, the the way that we look at things in the club these days as well. Just one more reason to see him ahead of his time. When he tries to get himself fired as captain, I mean, I love this. It's you know, it's the reverse dump. It's it's sort of what Suella Braverman attempted and succeeded, isn't this, it? This is a, this is amazing. <laughs> Do go on down. This is brilliant. Well, d- d- you'll have to help me fill in all the details, but the the number of different things he does to annoy basically the Surrey committee, so that they won't make him captain in the space in the space of a week. Go for it. So yeah, so so this this is this was in nineteen thirty one. He wanted to resign, um, largely because he thought Jardine should have been appointed, and he felt again and, and again not not many people would do this. He's the Surrey captain. It's one of the, the the great positions of English cricket, and he sees someone on his staff who he feels is going to go and do a better job, and feels that he should get that job, but it isn't isn't being given it. So the committee did not agree that Fender should resign. So so he found he found a way. Um, so to, uh, we should credit this this piece. This is a brilliant piece. Do do go on cr- cricketcountry dot uh, It's a lovely piece called Twenty Two Things You Didn't Know About Percy Fender, which is where a lot of this is coming from. Um, very much credit where it's due here. So um, yeah, um, so, <laughs> um, the, the, sorry, playing Lancashire at the Oval. It rained heavily on Saturday. Lancashire batted after the rain. Um, and because of the lack of covered pitches, every ball bowled caused a dent on the pitch, which basically spelled doom for Surrey on the Sunday because they would have the ball would have would have been going all, all over the place. Ultimately, it ended up raining. They didn't they didn't play the um, didn't play the game. Um, but um, yeah, Fender ultimately, when they did play very briefly on that dented pitch, asked his players to walk on the pitch after every ball, thereby smoothing down the dents. Um, Lancashire protested. Fender said he was acting within the laws. Ultimately, the rats was rained out. Um, Surrey then next travelled to Bournemouth to play Hampshire. Hampshire batted slowly, which clearly irritated Fender, so he decided to play Hampshire at their own game. He took the ball himself and started bowling lobs, placing every fielder on the fence. <laughs> um, it was a right-hand, left-handed combination that he was doing, so every ball, Fender changed the field, swapping deep square leg with deep point and making sure that the two fielders did not change their positions in any way quickly um, then back at the Oval later in the week it's still raining in London play resent eventually resumes on day three not even one innings of the game has been completed Surrey are now playing Kent both teams seize the initiative Kent sets Surrey a steep 240 uh, sorry 204 to win on 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 day three again not unheard of in those days Fender opens the batting alongside late career Jack Hobbs in the first over Hobbs blocks it Fender calls for a suicidal single and his run out calls the chase off immediately Hobbs still at the crease Andy Sand the next man in as well Douglas Jardine also still to play so it's fair to say sorry would have had a shot at that 204 but no Fender calls the uh, calls the chase off immediately these happen these three incidents happen in a little a little over a week and then in, within the next month, he didn't he didn't do anything much more unusual until Yorkshire rock up at the Oval, once again being played under gloomy conditions. Before the game, Fender made no attempts, no attempt whatsoever to inspect the pitch. And then three overs into the match, he leaves the ground. As sorry, captain, he leaves the ground and he called the Yorkshire captain, Frank Greenwood, and requested for him to call the match off on account that the bowler's footmarks were not up to the mark. 
Uh, the Yorkshire captain did not agree with this. Fender then went and appealed to Dennis Hendren, the brother of Patsy, and Frank Chester, who were the umpires. They agreed with uh, Fender, and play was called off. This led, to, to, to use the wording from this article, this led to a riot of sorts. <laughs> At the, at, at the site of an angry 5,000-strong crowd, Surrey CCC insisted the match resumed, much to Fender's chagrin. Play started after hold-up that lasted over an hour and thankfully petered out to a draw, though not before the crowd was treated hundreds from both Hobbs and Herbert Sutcliffe. Um, final paragraph of this section in the article, Fender had done his bit. Needless to say, he was sacked after the season, although he continued to lead he sporadically did. in the absence of Jardine and later Errol Holmes. I mean, that's just absolute genius, isn't it? No surrender, and Percy Fender. He doesn't back down. Yeah. And, and, also, <laughs> but, but though, and also, it does speak a little bit again to Brearley, doesn't it? I mean, the first man to stick all of his fielders out on the boundary in that famous one-day international that's resulted in fielding restrictions. You know, Brearley apparently sticking a bunch of helmets at extra cover to encourage the batters to have a whack at it. It's it's that kind of out-of-the-box thinking, isn't it? But it, it, on this occasion, you know, to try to get yourself fired because they just won't listen to you. Well, he innovated <laughs> on cricket clothing as well. He he got special caps made with longer peaks to um, that so players could could shade, shield themselves from the sun better. He got he got um, lighter, more sweat-absorbent underwear made because it was easier for players to wear. So he got into that. He was the first person in the press box to use a typewriter, which to me is just the most brilliant story about his his humor was that he um, he's crashing away which uh, evidently not that popular <laughs> um, and a lady does say i'm going to write to the club and make a complaint to which percy's immediate reply was would you like me to type it for you <laughs> which i which, which i thought is just nothing short of absolute absolute genius do you do you remember him guy as as as, as being that sort of that that's sort of twinkly i can see a twinkle in the eye but a barb in the comment both going very happily together um he always had an, an anecdote and would hold hold the the floor as it were um in the in the office, as I call it, at Bathall Museum, uh, there were four workers, including my my father, all in the wine trade. There would be lunch, and then there'd be coffee, and there maybe family members as well. But he would tell a story, um, but uh, it was never really barbed. Uh, he he, but he always had a, a a fair opinion, and he always tried to find the funny side. I can't remember specifics, but that sounds fantastic. That's hilarious. And so witty and, and quick off the mark. Well, he was an um, author as well. He re- he wrote fabulous four, uh, five, I think, cricket books. Yeah. Um, so 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 you can look out for those as as well. He was a videographer. Um, I think we're coming to the end of our of of, of our story, um, and and it's been extraordinary. Ronald Mason, the famous cricket writer, said Percy Fender. Tall, angular, beaky, balding, surprisingly reminiscent in appearance of Groucho Marx, looked about as unpromising material for an all-round cricketer as could be conceived. He looked decades older than he really was, and his large horn-rimmed spectacles over assertive tufted moustache gave him the air of a fierce cashier peering angrily among the ledges for a lost sixpence. Um, I think that's a little harsh, um, and I think we've more than put to bed that, that, that particular view of him. Um... Ten years captain of Surrey, an astute tactician, an excellent leader of men, a record holder to this day, uh, ahead of his time, uh, as Gilbert, as uh, Neville Carter said, the, the nature's second edition of Gilbert Jessup, first World War pilot, 
Uh, in the words of uh, A.G. Moyes, he could win a match, but rarely top the averages. Scorer of the fastest first-class century. A rebel with a righteous cause that promoted equality and technical advancement in the game. Perhaps unjustly seen as comedic, uh, but certainly played the game seriously, but to ensure that other people had fun watching it. An advocate of a thoroughly modern approach uh, with bat and ball. Tony, can I just come in here just you you, can. To, to use Percy's own words here, I think, to, to remember him. There was a game, Surrey's centenary match was played at the Oval in 1946. It was um, a year after the actual centenary of the club, for obvious reasons. Not, not, not much to celebrate, in, at least in the early summer of 1945. So they played, they played against Old England at the Oval in 1946. It was a game between Surrey and, and recently retired England players. It was played in the presence of um, of King George VI at the time, Surrey's patron, and um, and in in the presence of Percy. So uh, Percy wrote to the Times afterwards, uh, thanking the many thousands of people that had come and and, and given the old players such a wonderful uh, reception and, and 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 created such a such a glorious occasion, you know, in in front of His Majesty. And the uh, the final paragraph of that letter, um, I think, is also a lovely a lovely way possibly to to remember. Percy by from a cricketing standpoint at, at, at least where he says um, such a welcome as was given to old England collectively and individually must surely be a public assurance that those who can carve for themselves a little niche in the greatest of games can always be sure of a warm place in the hearts of all lovers of cricket Wow, well he was of course uh, all of those fabulous things um, but he was Guy and Nick's granddad. Um, so let's just remember that um, everything we talked about here uh, you can find online uh, auctions.bhandl.co.uk uh, type Percy Fender into the search bar and then go for uh, memorabilia uh, the auction will take place on December the 5th that will be live at 10am so you can go to the website if you can't make it to Exeter to the address we gave you um, and uh, many of the things we've talked about, including that letter, are going to be at the at that auction. Uh, for now, I want to say a huge thanks, uh, obviously, to you, John, to uh, to Dan, uh, and of course to Nick and to Guy uh, for helping to bring Percy's story <laughs> uh, with us. Uh, I hope so vividly to life. But what I'd like to do is leave the final words with Percy. And these are, uh, again, not long before he sadly left us. Um, these are his final thoughts on what he thinks he brought to the world of cricket. An enormous number of very happy memories. And I'm very glad to be able to say that from correspondence during the last 10 years or so, uh, there appear to be a, a few other people who... Well, think of my career as a very happy period, and it was to me. If it was to them, I'm delighted. No surrender, Percy Fender. Guerrilla Cricket. Sports Social Podcast Network.